I want to thank Maureen for reading that passage of Scripture from John. We will actually be there today. We're going to take some time. Uh, this is going to be a little different teaching from normal. Uh, right now we're in the book of Acts, and we will start in the book of Acts today in chapter 14, if you'll turn there. But there is a topic that comes up in this story today in the book of Acts that I would like to shift from a verse-by-verse -verse over to a subjective teaching on worship. And so that's why I had Maureen read John 4. Uh, but we'll begin here in verse 5 of chapter 14 in Acts. So if you're there with me, let's pray. Father, right now in this place, what used to be a cafeteria and today is a chapelteria, a place of worship. We're asking that, God, you would meet each of us right where we are and that we would come into greater understanding of the God who made us and who knows us and who has called us to himself. I pray, Lord, that the teaching today would enlighten the heart, it would strengthen the soul, it would make wise the simple. In Jesus' name, Everybody said, Amen. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country. And there, were, and there they continued to preach the gospel. I want to stop just for a second and say they've been in Iconium, and while there, they preached the gospel. Many, it says, many Jews and Gentiles believed. Yet, there were Jews who came against the teaching of Paul about Jesus Christ as the Son of God who was raised from the dead. And the Jews there chased him out of the city along with some of the Gentiles. And so they've come now to Lystra, or Lystra. And there was a man sitting who could not use his feet he was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now, the apostles didn't go into these cities to do miracles and then to preach. They actually went into the city in order to go to the synagogue where the Jews would gather for the worship of God through Judaism, and they would share Christ. They would explain who Jesus is from the Old Testament that the Jews knew quite well, and they would teach. But in this case, there's a miracle that takes place. They went to preach, and there were times where uh, healings took place. So they see this man who is crippled from birth. And there was something about this man's faith that was evident to Paul. When he looked at the man, somehow, some way, he saw a man with faith. Now, I want you to think about that. Do you walk around with a look of faith in God? Do you walk around with a look of uncertainty, confusion? distraction, worry. 
for some reason, this crippled man who has never walked his entire life, there was something in his face that gave Paul the understanding that he was a man of faith. Paul, by the gift of discernment, knew that God wanted to heal this man. And with a loud voice, Paul said, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Verse 11, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in, the, in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds before Barnabas and, and, and Paul. In Greek mythology, it was common for the gods to come to earth in human form. Especially in this region, a lot of Greek mythology, in fact, their folklore was that the gods did in fact come down. But because they didn't all receive the gods, the gods left very angry. And so this priest of, of Zeus, they would do everything they could to somehow honor and please and appease the gods. And now all of a sudden, a miracle of a man that they've known his whole life was a crippled, has been healed. And immediately they are connecting it to this concept that the gods have come back and now they're okay with us. All the sacrifices that we've made at the temple of Zeus have been sufficient for them to come back and to show mercy to us. Immediately the people began to worship Paul and Barnabas instead of the one true and living God. And they did it because of the miracle. They attached the miracle to man and not God. But they thought they were attaching it to the gods. They didn't see these two men as men. They saw them as gods. Verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they didn't understand Iconium, so they don't know what the people are saying, even though the people are praising them. But somebody explained it to them. Here's what they're saying about you. When they heard, heard of it, they tore their garments. By the way, this is a Jewish expression of disgust over the blasphemy of a people. Verse 14, and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We, are also, uh, we also are men of like nature with you. We bring the good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So Paul is trying to appeal to these, these uh, pagans by the one true God who made the heavens and the earth. He makes reference to that. Instead of proclaiming the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of whom they would not have known because these are Gentiles. So they're not familiar. Now, the Jews, would have under, the Jews that lived there would have understood, but most of the people were, were, were Gentile. And so instead of appealing by saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he appealed to the universal and rational knowledge that they had. And so he talks about the one, capital O, who created the world. He's trying to get them 
to move away from false worship. In verse 16, in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul is trying again to talk to people who wouldn't have a reference point of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's saying, this is a good God, the one true God who created all things. And look, he's even shown mercy to you, even though you don't know him. How has he shown mercy? By giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, by allowing you to satisfy your hearts with food and with festivities, joy. You're able to be married. You're able to have kids. You're able to have a family and to celebrate these things. All of those things theologians call the common grace of God. Even today, we have people in this world who experience every day the common grace of God. They're able to experience family, marriage, enjoy little babies that are born. They're able to uh, have a job and make money. They're able to enjoy the beauty of the sky and the earth that God created. These are common graces that God has made available to all people. But there is a significant difference between receiving God's common grace and God's saving grace. And this is why as a church, uh, as believers, we have a responsibility to communicate the true gospel that salvation only comes through Jesus Christ, and that's the only way to saving grace. We, we don't want to leave our work associates, our neighbors, our, our unsaved friends in this place of simply enjoying the common grace of God. You can enjoy the common grace for a hundred years if you live that long, and then you die and you go to hell. Do we care enough about this world and people who are caught up in all of these cultural nuances today, in this sexual revolution today? Do we care enough about them to be faithful, to share the good news of Jesus with them, hoping that they might move from common grace to saving grace? And of course, all of that is the work of God. We're just throwing the seed and letting the seed do the work, the word of God do the work. Verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. The people's hearts were darkened. They had found their own ways of worship. They had their own narrative dealing with these Greek myth, this Greek mythology. And they placed Barnabas and Paul in that category making mere men gods. It was easier for them to have an external worship than to have their eyes opened by the Holy Spirit that they might experience internal worship. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Those were the two locations that they, Paul and Barnabas had been prior where they had run into persecution. And now Jews came from those two cities, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Wow, that's a, quite a shift. You go from uh, people worshiping you as a god 
to that crowd being riled up by the Jews from two other cities so that now they stone you to death. They want to stone you to death. They weren't stoning him so he just would be uncomfortable. They intended to kill him. Okay? In fact, it says right there in the text, supposing that he was dead. Now, there are those theologians who want to say that Paul, in fact, did die. That is not true. That is not what the text says. It says they supposed him to be dead. To suppose is to think a particular thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And if you read the rest of the narrative, it doesn't at all look like Paul died. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on, that, on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. So stoned one day, and then he rises up as the disciples. Who what disciples? It's just Paul and Barnabas. Oh, it's the people in the past couple cities and the people even in Lystra who have believed in Jesus. They're now disciples. And they go out and they minister to Paul. And he rises. He's up. He's back walking again. And the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. So Paul did not die from stoning as some claim. They, they say it because they want to link somehow the third heaven experience that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 12. But there's no reference that that's exactly what happened here. Okay? Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So, okay, we were stoned in Lystra. We were chased out of town in Iconium. And also in Antioch, Pisidia, uh, they, that didn't end well. In all three cases, God, by persecution, kept pushing us forward on our missionary journey. And now it's time to turn and go back to Antioch in Syria. And they're going the same route they came. We're going to enter those same cities again, having been persecuted in those cities. I love what Paul says here. And this is the key for the Christian life. This is not just for Paul and Barnabas. This is not just for the missionaries that we might send and support on the mission field. This is for every believer to understand. It says they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Here it is. Strengthening, strengthening the souls of the disciples, those who had believed while they were in those cities, encouraging them to continue in the faith. You're going to face trial. You're going to face questions. Satan, when you come to Christ, he's going to try to plant doubts in your mind. We see it happening in our church, people getting saved. And yet, a week later, Satan has planted doubt, fear, whatever. And Paul is saying, you've got to continue in the faith. And saying that through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. You're going to face trials as a believer in this world. So as a church, we're not here to try and run around the storms. We're here to face the storms, which will strengthen our faith and create in us an endurance and a maturity in our spiritual walk with God enabling us to speak the word of God even more boldly. This is the life of a believer. This is the way of God's church. 
We're in the infancy. Paul is out, and God is using Paul by the Spirit to launch churches. And look what he's teaching them in the foundation. These new disciples be encouraged to continue in the faith and know that through many tribulations you will enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders, that's something else they did in churches. They appointed elders for them in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. Now they're back down on the coast. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. That would be just a little bit to the west on the coast. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So they completed their missionary journey. Verse 27, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Now, let me just explain that last verse, they remained no little time with the disciples. Uh, there's, there's a variance of belief on this, but pretty much all, all the theologians believe Paul and Barnabas spent at least a year up in that region where all these people were being saved and baptized and were being, some were being appointed as elders and the churches were being strengthened. For a, over a year, they ministered there. So they didn't just save people and then run off and leave people for the wolves. They poured into them, they raised up leaders, they cared for them, they nurtured, they discipled them. Which, by the way, is a great moment for us to understand that as a church, while we do not have a small group program where the church leaders and church office lay out this massive plan for people to be in small groups, we as elders, shepherds of this flock, very much believe that people should find connection points with one another and that small groups can be a very effective tool in doing that. So while we're not going to become this programmatic small group church, we are always encouraging people to be in connection with one another and small groups being one of the ways to do it. And we will even come alongside any of you who have a desire for that. And you're saying, well, we don't really know much about small group, and we're not really sure who can lead and whatever. We'll help you with that. We want to come alongside those who would like to be discipled through small group ministry. But we do have small groups already. We have men's ministry, small groups that meet weekly. There's an amen right there for that. And, and we have women's ministry, and we have Maureen, who's teaching a small group of women from the Word of God, verse by verse. And we have other groups in our church, some who were meeting together even before they came to Vero Bible Fellowship. And, and that is such a good thing. We see that as a healthy thing. We'd like to see more. This is what Paul was investing in. This is what he was investing in for a year creating churches whereby leaders could lead and teach because they've been taught by Paul and Barnabas. And when this whole thing was done, they went back to Antioch in Syria, having completed this first missionary journey. So it ends uh, with this missionary journey 
being a success in the midst of a lot of trials. The successful journey of God is filled with trials. Can that not be our takeaway as a church family after studying Paul's first missionary journey? That for us to be faithful to God, we're going to have to continue in the faith. We're going to have to face trials when they come, and they will come. And many of you know, how many of you are facing any kind of a, like an allergy right now? You've got head issues, you've got throat tightening up and all that. Raise your hands. Yes, several of you. And it's probably not contagious because it's allergy, you know, stimulated. Uh, I'm I'm that way right now. I've got my pocket filled with my little cough, you know, uh, cough drops and so that I don't break out into a a coughing spell. Um, that's just part of it, that here I am. I, I, it's, it's important to press through whatever life brings and be faithful to God. Amen? Amen. Now, I'm not saying don't use wisdom. If you come down with COVID, please don't come to church. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, let's, let's use wisdom, okay? But let's also walk in faith, always, always. Okay, uh, I want to go back, though, and I want to focus on how this group of people in Lystra got caught up in the healing that Paul and Barnabas performed by the Holy Spirit. They didn't do it. It was the Spirit doing it through them. And how the people attached worship to these two men because of a sign or a wonder. We too need to be very careful in our understanding of worship. What is worship? What is not worship? Do we understand the difference between acceptable worship and unacceptable worship? And so if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible to John chapter 4, we're just going to take the remaining minutes that we have together, and I want to just give you a very simple teaching, but I think it's a clarifying point that I want to make that I think the elders of our church want you to understand regarding worship. There are four kinds of unacceptable worship. Let me give them to you. Write these down. If you have your Acts little notebook that we, that we uh, gave out to you, remember that? If you still have that, that might be a good place to write these down. Four kinds of unacceptable worship. Number one, worshiping false gods. We see all that right here in the text. These men had turned Paul and Barnabas into gods. They were worshiping them falsely. Okay, The Bible is very clear that God does not accept the worship of false gods. I mean the Bible is littered with stories of false worship. God will not accept people into his kingdom, into his eternity, into his presence, who worship other deities, whether they are deities of a religious nature or whether they are idols such as gold, silver, power, prestige, or idols of self. Anyone who worships false gods is excluded from entering into God's presence because that is unacceptable worship. He will not accept false worship, nor will he accept any person 
who offers false worship. This is a very strong statement that we're making right now. And I'm pulling every ounce of it from the word of the living God. God does not accept unacceptable worship, nor the person who offers it. Secondly, not only are there, worship, are, are there those who worship false gods, but we can worship the true God in the wrong way. That's number two. He will not accept worshiping him in a wrong way. He will not accept the worship of the false God. He will not accept the worship of the true God if offered the wrong way. Worship of true God is very specifically established in the Holy Scriptures. And its mode and its manner is equally specific in the Bible. God will not accept worship of him that is offered in an unacceptable manner. And an unacceptable manner is to reduce God to an image Worshiping an image, a picture of Jesus. I wonder if anybody in the room has said, well, my favorite picture of Jesus is, uh, what does Jesus look like? Where did that picture come from of Jesus? And to place an emphasis on a picture of Jesus that has no bearing on the Son of the Living God. If you really want a picture of Jesus, you got to go to the Bible. And the best place to go to find the Jesus of today would be in Revelation, where we see Jesus, the glorified Christ, in chapter one of Revelation, whose eyes are like a burning fire, whose hair is white like wool, whose voice is like the sound of a rushing water, who out of his mouth comes forth a double-edged sword that is what jesus looks like today in heaven he's the glorified christ but don't worship the picture worship him you say well that would seem obvious it's not there are people who hang a picture of jesus in the house or have a little thing on the dashboard of the car just so they can think that they're protected. That is false worship. It is unacceptable to God. And listen to me. They are unacceptable to God when they worship him that way. To reduce God to an idol or reduce God to anything that is the result or product of your own thinking if you had somewhere in Scripture that the disciples, after being saved and after Jesus was, re was re resurrected and ascended, that then they went out and they made, they carved pictures of Jesus. They, they carved images of Jesus. And God accepted it. Then you'd have a reason to do it. There's none of that. In fact, Jesus deals directly with that matter. The, the absolute strongest, most central theme on worship Jesus gives to a woman at a well that we're going to look at in just a moment. People will say, well, I, I perceive God to be this. I perceive God to be that. For me, God is such and such. Who cares what you think God is? 
He made it very clear who he is in Scripture, and he will not accept worship in any other way, shape, or form. You say, well, I just kind of think that there's a lot of ways to God, and so therefore I don't think it's right for us to look down upon people who see him differently. You know, those in the Himalayan mountains, those in Tibet, they worship God a certain way. There's Buddhism, you know. I'm sorry. That's not what the Bible says. You have the Son of God himself say, if anyone is going to go to the Father, they have to come through Buddhism? They come through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man goes to God by any other means. So if you've kind of created your own little syncretistic soup of what worship looks like, and if you've got a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and a lot of this, and none of that, all listen, God does not receive that worship. And he does not receive you. I know that sounds harsh. I'm just being based on the word of God. That's I could take you. We don't have time. I wish this was an hour and a half, two hour teaching. Because I would take you to numerous texts in the Bible. That back up what I'm saying to you. So first, worshiping false gods. Secondly, worshiping the true God in a wrong way. Thirdly, worshiping the true God in a self-focused or self-inventive way. Worshiping the true God in a self-focused, self-inventive way. Notice how the enemy works. The first one was worshiping a false god. You're not even worshiping the right God. You don't even think you're worshiping. You're just off doing your own thing. The second one and the third one, you think you're worshiping the right God. But you're doing it this time in a self-focused way. In other words, not just reducing him to an idol, not just reducing him to an image, but reducing his worship or the activity of his worship to some personal description or definition. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, take your Bible, turn quickly, if you will, to Leviticus chapter 10, Old Testament, part of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? All that stuff, find Leviticus. Here we go, chapter 10, verse 1. Leviticus 10, I'll give you a second to get there. I skipped Leviticus wondering if any of you would pick up on it. I had a couple laughs. You'll find it. It's right there. Look for it. It's good for you to study. Good for you to research and find things on your own. By the way, that's why we have you bring a Bible. We want you to bring a Bible to church. The ESV is what we use in particular so that you can follow along. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered, here it is in the, in the ESV, unauthorized fire. In the New American Standard Bible, which is a verse by, or a word for word translation, it says, a strange fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. In other words, they moved away from the absolute clear teaching of Scripture of how to approach God in worship as a priest. And and verse 2, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. I will be separate. 
and before all the people I will be glorified. You do not mock me by offering an unauthorized form of worship in my presence. You don't come up with your own way of doing it. You do it exactly as I have prescribed because I am a holy God and you are not holy. Therefore, you must follow what I give you. And it says that when, these are Aaron's sons. This is the day of their ordination. This is the first time they're going to get to go into the holy place and light the incense before God. This is a big day in their lives. They've been waiting for this. They're sons of the high priest. Now they're going to become the priests. This is a big day. They go in there and they offer an unauthorized strange fire and God consumes them with fire. That's what you call a short ministry. Maybe these boys were inebriated. That's possible. Look down at verse 9 or verse 8. And the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. Being pretty specific there, isn't he? Maybe that's what they did. But what's interesting, if you go back to verse 3, so these are Aaron's sons. He's got to be so proud. My two boys are priests. They're going to go back and light the fire, the incense before God. And then they're struck dead. And it says, Moses came to Aaron, and he said, this is what the Lord said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And look at the response of Aaron, and Aaron held his peace. There's no rebuttal. Whatever my boys did was not authorized. It was not part of the worship of God, the one true God, as he has ordered us to worship. Therefore, Aaron couldn't come back with any other comment or excuse or rebuttal. He held his peace. You barely get started your first day of ministering before the Lord, and you're back there, and either you got a little careless, you got a little inebriated, and just weren't paying attention, or maybe you thought, we're going to change things just a little bit. We're just going to, we're going to spice it up a little bit. And just like a bug zapper, the bug enters, zzz, it's all, it's gone. Bug's dead. This is the holiness of God we're talking about. Do you think for a second that in this generation that we live in with the culture around us and the sexual revolution that we're in the midst of that's been, that started back in the 60s and it hasn't slowed down, it's only gotten worse, it's a constant downgrade that we're in right now. Do you think for a second that God has ceased to be as holy as the day that he struck these two boys dead? God has not changed at all. He cannot change. If he could change, if he changed, he wouldn't be God. And just because we live in a time of God's grace doesn't give us permission to presume upon his grace. As a people of God, even though we live after the resurrection of Christ and understanding the gospel and receiving saving grace, God still expects our worship to be pure and holy and scripturally accurate. 
nothing less. Nothing less. We don't worship God on our terms, but according to the terms of Scripture. To further illustrate this, there was a story years ago in the Chicago Tribune. It was about a lady in Mexico who baked tortillas. Her name was Mrs. Rubio. I don't think she's related to Senator Rubio. Maybe, though. No, actually, I think he's Cuban. The Tribune recorded her story many years earlier that she was frying a tortilla and she took the tortilla out of the pan and she said with a great amount of shock, it's the face of Jesus. The skillet burns on the tortilla to her looked like the face of Jesus. How does she know what Jesus looks like? Because she saw pictures that people gave of Jesus that are false. Have you ever been there? Have you ever tried to see Jesus a certain way in your mind? Well, this is what Jesus is like for me. This is what I think of when I think of Jesus. And, oh, I love that particular picture of Jesus. I just love If you're going to go there, you might as well join Ricky Bobby and say your favorite Jesus is an eight-pound, six-ounce newborn infant Jesus. So Mrs. Rubio, so excited about her tortilla that she showed it to her husband, who agreed, yep, that's Jesus. She showed it to her family, and they agreed, and her neighbors, and they agreed, and she went to her priest to have the tortilla blessed. And the priest, who had not really been accustomed to blessing tortillas, blessed the tortilla. And she took the tortilla home, and she built an altar in her house, and she put the tortilla in a glass and put piles of cotton around it so it looked like Jesus was floating on the clouds. And within a matter of months, Mrs. Rubio had over 8,000 people come to the shrine of the, of the Jesus of the tortilla. And everyone who saw it unanimously agreed that it looked like Jesus, except for one reporter who said, I think it looks like Leon Spinks. <laughs> what does he know? So they wrote her testimony in the Chicago Tribune, and the story said this, the tortilla had changed her life. And her husband agreed. He said that she was a more peaceful, happier, submissive wife ever since the tortilla had arrived. I could not find a more silly, ridiculous story than this story about Mrs. Rubio and the tortilla Jesus. I got to tell you, a lot of people are doing some pretty stupid things today. In the worship of God, we've got a whole religion. It's all about idols. I've got, I've got a friend of mine who's failing with ALS, but he's from Minnesota, and he is a dynamic believer. When God grabbed Greg King's heart, it was a complete change. A very successful business person, and yet God completely changed him so much so that he was unafraid to share Christ with the local uh, affiliate ABC where he worked and constantly was leading people to Jesus in high-profile 
arenas. And he told me, he said, Greg, I grew up in Minnesota, a large family, Catholic. He said, to my mother's dying day, my mother had all the cards of the saints that she was so proud of. She'd pull them out, lay out the saints' cards. She would even, like baseball cards, trade one with somebody else just trying to get the right cards that she liked. Sad. Right now on the earth, millions of people cry out to Mary for mercy. And the saddest thing of all is Mary has never heard a single prayer. There's not one place in Scripture that gives any reference to Mary worship. It's false worship. And I'm not saying that to belittle the people who worship her. I'm saying how easy it is for us to build our own forms of worship and not even know it. And they're false. They're for false. Let me give you one more. Worshiping the true God with a wrong attitude. This is probably the one that most Christians fall into. We worship the one true God, that's good, but with a wrong attitude. See, what, what real worship of God comes down to is do you have the right attitude? Because if you don't, God will find the unacceptable. He'll find that just as unacceptable as the others that are false worship. In Luke chapter 18, just write it down, don't turn. Luke 18 verse 10, Jesus is giving a parable and he says this, two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, excuse me, a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What's he doing? He's identifying all the faults, the faults in others. And I'm nothing like them. I don't do those things. Well, you've got your own little set of sins. You're not calling those out, but you're calling out everybody else's sins. And verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. By the way, fasting is good. Praying is good. Tithing, giving to God, is good. But he's bragging on it. He's doing it with a wrong attitude. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He had hardly anything to bring except true worship. He acknowledged God as the one true God and he acknowledged that he was a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For, him, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You cannot help but understand and see throughout Scripture that true worship of God can only come through true salvation. True salvation. There's two kinds of people in the world, church. Those who worship God acceptably and those who do not. And the fact is, apart from the faith that we have in Christ, apart from the saving grace of God in the work of a sinner's life, acceptable worship, listen, is impossible. 
You cannot worship God if you've not been regenerated, if you've not been redeemed by God. And this brings us to the story, and I'm going to close now, but let me just share this with you. In verse 16 of John chapter 4, Jesus said to this woman at the well, she was a Samaritan, and he said, go call your husband and come to come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What, have you, what you have said is true. This turned the woman. This stunned her. How did he know my sin life? And look what she does. Knowing that she's speaking to someone who's greater than man. There's something about this guy. I don't know what it is. This guy, he's different. What does she do? The very next thing. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now keep in mind, listen now, this is a Samaritan woman. She's of the offspring of the Jews, but through intermarriage she has come into pagan religion. So they corrupt the one true God and the worship of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob through Judaism. Now it's a, it's a hodgepodge, it's a, 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 a syncretistic approach. And one of the results of that intermarrying was the corruption of the faith of the, of the Samaritans. They kept the Pentateuch but adopted other pagan idols and rituals. And so this is what leads her to ask a simple question. First, she knows, I'm not just talking to a man. This is a prophet of God. Therefore, what does she turn to immediately? Worship! Please give me the answer of how to worship God. Because I've been carrying this heavy load of guilt and shame for my sin life. And you've identified it. You're correct. How do I come into a right worship of God? By the way, let me say this. Any person who is unrepentant, an unrepentant sinner, will never be able to worship God internally. And that's the only way to worship him. If you really want to have a right heart for God, you've got to worship him the way he set it up. Not externally. Unrepentant sinners can only set up external ways of worshiping God to try and appease God for the sins that they've committed. That's why you have five major world religions today. They are external ways to try and appease God. Not the one true God, but God or gods. Let me draw a truth from this. I want you to see this quickly. And this might be you today. As a shepherd, I'm sharing this because I don't want believers in our church to worship the right God the wrong way or to worship God with a wrong attitude. How we approach church on Sunday matters. She's asking Jesus, which, uh, which system of works do I need to follow, the way of the Jews or the way of the Samaritans? Jesus is going to tell her, no, there is no external system of works for you to follow. Look what he said to her, verse 21. He answered her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, see the, the, the Samaritans had chosen their own mountain by which they would worship, and they had their own altar to worship. The Jews worshiped what? 
on Mount Zion, okay, Mount Moriah, at the Temple Mount, where the, te- tap, where the, uh, the, te- the, temp- or the temple was. The, the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim, okay? And so he's saying a time is coming when you'll neither worship him on, in Jerusalem on their mountain or you'll worship him on your mountain. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. She's saying, okay, Samaritans, you got it wrong. The Jews got it right up until now. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The Lord makes it clear that it's not the place where she worships that matters. What she's looking for is not dependent on a ceremony or a ritual. You need to know God through Jesus Christ. And that time is now coming. I'm going to go to the cross. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. You'll come to understand that I am the Son of God, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no other way to get to the Father except through me. And that way is not an external worship. It's an internal worship. It's coming to church on Sunday morning, not looking for external signs of worship. We don't come because I like this song that we're going to sing, or I like our band, or I like this, or whatever. We come for one reason, to worship the one true living God inside our hearts. And I can do that every day, wherever I am. I don't have to wait to go to a certain location to see certain signs and wonders, to experience certain types of music, to have some kind of a light show or presentation. I don't need contextualization to worship the one true living God. I just need to have a heart that's right before him. Psalm 24. Let me just turn there quick. Listen to this. Who will ascend? Who who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. How do I get the, the pure the clean hands and pure heart? By believing that Jesus is the way and putting my full trust in him for my own righteousness and my goodness. That's the first step to entering into true worship, being redeemed by Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, turn there if you will. Or just let me read it for you, that's fine. In Hebrews 12, verse 28. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, See, earthly buildings can be shaken. We, you know, we, we desire to have a building here at Bureau Bible Fellowship. We're, we're always looking for that. In fact, we had a meeting this past week, and uh, there's a couple places that we talked about. There's another one that we've kind of been talking with for over a year. Neither of these are on the market, but you know, if, if God opens the right door and he kind of guides us in that direction, we're going to pursue it. Don't think that we've been sitting back twiddling our thumbs. We are actively looking for a permanent home. But let me just tell you something. God could give us a permanent home, and a year later, that whole thing burned down. This passage in Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It can't burn down. Why? Because it's inside of me. 
My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within. And thus let us offer to God, here it is, acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So what is the qualifier for true worship that has a right attitude? You come with reverence and awe. Reverence means that you have this healthy fear of God. You say, how healthy? For our God is a consuming fire. I never forget that apart from him, I would end up in, in eternity in hell. And that God is constantly, constantly purifying me. So I have this reverence for him. Awe, meaning awestruck by the greatness of my God. Right attitude of worship is not looking at buildings, not looking at worship, looking at songs, looking at how people dress when they come to church. Right worship is coming with a heart that is filled with reverence and awe. And entering into singing that my mind, first and foremost, might be enlightened to the greatness of my God, along with my brothers and sisters. And then letting what I know about him that is so great begin to fuel my emotion and causes me to start weeping, causes me to start clapping, causes me to shout out, amen! See, God is not disconnecting us from our feelings. He's just saying, get it in the right order. It starts with what I know. That fuels what I feel. If you come into a service where you're looking at how things, well, good grief, the crowd's not very big today. I guess it's, oh, it's just going to be a flat day. Oh, they're singing that song. Oh, I can't stand that song. Oh, that song. Why are they doing that one again? Good grief, man. See, you're looking at externals. That is unacceptable worship. Acceptable worship is in your heart knowing who God is and having great fear and awe of him and joining with your brothers and sisters in lifting up the praises of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is with joy in our hearts that we gather together today. We thank you for the clarity that Scripture provides us to understand what is acceptable worship and what is unacceptable worship. It brings us even into greater reverence and awe of you. We, we don't want to do this the wrong way. We want to follow Scripture and not be led by men who have their own ideas and opinions and perspectives of God. We want the Bible perspective, which is God's perspective of himself. We want to follow you, Lord. So today receive our worship. Even in this closing prayer, as you begin to speak to hearts, if we have, have, if we have sinned against you in our worship, may we confess it right now and know that as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we give you praise and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I have to share this at the close that we have elders and we have prayer partners who are coming forward and they would be delighted to lift up your need before the Lord. By the way, we had two miracles that took place uh, in the last 10 days in people's lives. Amen. I'm talking about, I'm talking about cancer in both situations, very significant cancer that was clearly evident to the doctors. And I'm not talking about some podunk, hokey, 
little clinic somewhere that in, lost in nowhere. I'm talking about Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic kind of stuff. And doctors having documented the cancer and going in and finding absolutely not a single cell. So we give God glory, amen? And, and I, I look for the day soon when those who experience this would share with us to hear from them. And I, I just think it's something about the power of the testimony. But guess who gets the glory in the testimony? Jesus alone. Testimonies are when you brag on Jesus. Amen? So praise God for that. But if you need prayer, we've got folks who will pray with you and who will, will minister to you and agree with you. Okay? God bless you, church. Thank you for being here today. Be blessed this week. Worship God the one true way by his word.